All right, perhaps a different direction for Easter Sunday morning, at least to begin. I think you'll see where I'm going as the sermon progresses. But if you turn to Leviticus chapter 16, you'll be in the right text as we begin this morning. Leviticus chapter 16 reveals to us the details of the ceremony for the Day of Atonement. And this was the most holy day in the Jewish religious calendar. On Friday night, we talked about Pesach, the um, Passover, which is a, really a time of celebration, a time of feasting. But the Day of Atonement was not like that. A very somber, very solemn holiday in the Jewish calendar. And it, this particular day, the Day of Atonement, the ritual for which is described the entire chapter of Leviticus 16, involves an elaborate preparation and a very specific ritual in which the high priest would make an offering for himself, for his own sins and the sins of his family, and then he would make another offering for the sins of the people, the entire nation of Israel, which collectively had sinned against the Lord. It's unlikely that the high priest slept much the night before the Day of Atonement. He had been cloistered away when the temple was finally built. The high priest would actually stay in the temple, in one of the rooms on the temple, as he prepared himself to be holy unto the Lord when that day finally came. For a week or so, he would live there to prevent possible contamination, which would make him impure, and then render him incapable of performing the ritual. The high priest was taken from his home and made to live in the temple for a week before this particular service. Every day he was subject to a routine that is described for us in Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. You don't have to turn there. But in order to ensure his absolute purity for the Day of Atonement, he was subject to this purification ritual to prepare him for this day, the day described in Leviticus chapter 16. And finally, the day came. This was a day unlike any other day of the year because the high priest did not wear his usual brightly colored clothes. You might remember that the priest had a fantastic-looking outfit, very colorful, lots of scarlet and purples and blues all woven together. He had a, a breastplate that he would wear with precious stones in it. There were golden chains that hung from his neck, an enormous hat, and he would wear this as he performed his regular, regular priestly duties in the temple, but not on the Day of Atonement. You can see in this text, and I would love to read the entire 34 verses of this chapter, but I will just make comment on some of the verses as we move through. Look in verse 4 of Leviticus chapter 16. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. So he sets aside his regular outfit for performing what are regular feasts in the Jewish calendar. And he would wear only the linen robe, only worn on very special occasions. These were the holy garments. Everything really on him was the color of linen, which is not quite white, but just a little off-white as he prepared himself for this very important day. Then, of course, there were all kinds of washings that were to be done. Look in verse 4 again. 
He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So he's washed, he's purified, he's been cleansed with this very specific ritual, which in Numbers chapter 19 involves the ashes of a red heifer and all sorts of um, sacrifices and purification rituals. So when he finally gets to this day of atonement, he is as pure as he can possibly be. He bathes in water, he puts on the linen outfit, and he begins this particular ceremony, which begins in verse 5. It says, He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So the very first act of the day is to catch the blood of the bull, to take that blood into the Holy of Holies. You remember the tabernacle has two rooms. The first room is the holy place, or what we call the holy room. You could go in there, you couldn't, but the priest could go in there and perform a series of rituals involving the table of showbread, the altar of incense. What was the other piece of furniture? Anyone? How are we doing on our temple furniture? Not so good. He would light the candles of the lampstand, right? That eight-branch menorah that's set inside the tabernacle. I should have had a quiz before this sermon, I see. He came into that holy place where the regular ritual of the temple and of religious life in Israel was performed. But only one day out of the year could the high priest enter that holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And he would go into the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of the bull, and he would make a sacrifice for himself. He was a sinner, right? And he had to offer blood for his own sin, and he had to offer blood for the sin of his family, all part of this purification ritual that he was going through. Once the blood from that bull, in addition to coals from the altar and some incense, was carried into the most holy place, set on the mercy seat, right between those cherubim that covered the center of the Ark of the Covenant. He would set, sprinkle the blood there. The incense would come up. That smoke, which we're told, represents the prayers of the saints that come up before the Lord. He would offer that there on the mercy seat. And then he would exit the most holy place. Now, once that grisly business was finished, the high priest turned his attention to the two goats, which he had pre-selected. I mean... On this day, this high priest must have got up really early because this would take a long time to do all of these different rituals. And then he would come to these goats. And in verse 7 we read, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now you say, what on earth is Azazel? And I say, I don't know. Nobody really knows. Azazel is this unusual Hebrew word that nobody really understands what it means. However, we know what's going on. Into a particular container would be put two stones. One of the stones would have been marked probably with this word Azazel on it or maybe just an olive marking. And the stones would be shaken until one of the stones jumped out of the basket. And that lot would go to the goat, which was called Azazel. And the other stone that came out would be for the other goat. 
And Aaron, in verse 9, shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Okay, so don't lose me in the details here. And I know there's a lot of details. Just stick with me. That high priest is busy with the ritual for the Day of Atonement. He's sacrificed a sacrifice for himself. He's offered the blood. He's brought the incense into the most holy place. He's come out of that holy place. Now he's busy with these goats. One goat, we're told, will be taken away into the wilderness. It's a long way to get outside of the camp of Israel. The tents are organized around the central sanctuary. And somebody would have to hike all the way out of the tented area into the wilderness, probably some distance from where the tents were set up, and he would let the goat go. That was, frankly, the lucky goat. Um, Not the mad goat like the coffee shop here in town. The lucky goat would be released, and he would go off into the wilderness. Don't miss the picture. Bearing our sin, bearing the sins of the people away. I had a pastor tell me one time, there's no such thing as atonement in the New Testament because to atone means to cover. And he said, Christ doesn't cover our sins, he takes our sin away. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange that you would say there's no atonement in the New Testament because that is precisely the point. The writer of Hebrews would tell us that Christ is taken outside the city, right? Bearing our shame, bearing our reproach. So there is indeed atonement in the New Testament. Perhaps better described as a doctrine of expiation, but the sin is taken away in this ritual. So this scapegoat is prepared. He shows up a little bit later in the ritual. But the other goat was killed and his blood was caught. And now the high priest re-enters the holy place to offer the sacrifice of this goat, the blood of this goat, on behalf of the people. No one else is allowed in the temple or in the tabernacle while this ritual is being performed. You can't just come in. Say, I'd like to watch this. See what happens. No, 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 no. Only the high priest. And only if he meets all the purification rituals set out in this particular text. Look in verse 15 and 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Now, you could watch that because the altar sat in the temple courtyard outside of the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. So you could see that. And I suspect if I was in Israel in ancient times, I suspect I would be at the edge of the tent looking over to see what was happening. But here's the question I'd like us to ponder today. 
Here was the high priest who had been carefully prepared for this moment, but his very life hung in the balance. If he did this wrong, if he came into the Holy of Holies impure, he would be immediately struck dead. In fact, you can read it in this text several times in Leviticus chapter 16. It says of Aaron, he does this that he may not die. That's how serious it was. If you took the offering on the Day of Atonement into the holy place and you had not performed the ritual in the correct way, if you had not purified yourself in the correct way and you went into the holy place on the Day of Atonement, you would be immediately struck dead. So how did people know? This is the big question. How did people know that the blood that was offered in the holy place was accepted by God as a sacrifice. They couldn't see what was going on. Nobody knew what was happening inside. I mean, they read it in the law. They knew what was supposed to happen. But how would anyone know? There used to be a story about a rope that was tied around the ankle of the high priest in case he died in the holy place. People would have to pull him out because no one else could go in there because then they would die. But I've done a lot of reading about this particular ritual and that story begins to show up in like the 16, 1700s, but nobody's ever heard tell of it before that. So it's probably some preacher made up this really great story and told it to his congregation, and somebody who was sitting in his congregation said, I like that, I'm going to tell that to another preacher. And so they told it to another preacher, and guess what? Every preacher everywhere has been saying it for years, but it's a lie. So <laughs> sometimes preachers do that, I confess. Would God be gracious and allow for the blood of an animal to stand in for the blood of those who are guilty of the sins of the people? Would it be allowed? That's why the Israelites, I think, would be watching to see when the high priest came out of the tabernacle. Then they would know that the Day of Atonement ritual was over and finished because God had accepted the sacrifice that was made. Now, what is very interesting to me is that the writer of Hebrews... Over in Hebrews chapter 9, picks up on the details of Leviticus chapter 16. We would expect the writer of Hebrews to do this. He's very taken up with the Old Testament. So turn to Hebrews 9 for a moment, because I want to make this connection for you. In Hebrews 9 and verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. <laughs> yeah, we've just read some of them. Washings and offerings and slaying of beasts and catching of blood and the rubbing of blood on the horns of the earth. There was a very specific regulation for worship and an earthly place of holiness. There was that in Old Testament Israel under the Old Covenant. There was this earthly place of holiness for a tent. Verse 2, he tells us about it. For a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Let me just pause to make a point. Inside the ark of the covenant. You ever wondered what was inside the ark of the covenant? Most people think, oh, I know what's in the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ten Commandments. Yes, 
It was the Ten Commandments, but it was more than that. There was a golden pot with manna that was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. And Aaron's rod that budded when God chose Aaron and his line as the priestly line, that staff was put inside the Ark of the Covenant of well. I think these reminders of God's provision, of God's providence, and of God's protection or God's program, we might say the tablets of the covenant, were all put inside the Ark of the Covenant as permanent reminders to God's people of those realities in which God cares for his people. But I digress. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's probably the saddest verse in the whole Bible. Really? Can't you just say a little more? Because I would love to hear the writer of Hebrews on the furniture in the tabernacle. However, he doesn't want to speak of these in detail because in verse 6, he reminds us of the Day of Atonement ritual. You see? These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. That's the Day of Atonement. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, so what's the point of the story? See, wow, that's really fascinating. You know, I mean, the priest doing all these things and killing these animals and catching blood and rubbing blood all over everything and shaking blood on pieces of furniture. It's a bit weird, but okay, it's cool. But what's the point? Well, in verse 6, these preparations... Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, you could not... What was the point? The point was... Only the high priest can go in there because you need to know that under the old covenant, the way to God was blocked. You couldn't get there unless someone offered a sacrifice and it had to be the high priest. The way to God was blocked. There was a separation between you and God. The old covenant is full of pictures of this. And now, in this day, something big has happened. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of the Reformation. Don't miss verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place. Christ, as our high priest, now enters into the holy place. Look at what he says. Once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
So Christ dies on the cross, offers himself as the bloody sacrifice. He enters into that holy place for us, pictured on the Day of Atonement by the high priest who entered the holy place. And the question we sit with is, how do we know that the entrance into the holy place satisfied the righteous wrath of God over our sin? How can we be certain that the sacrifice of Jesus is accepted by God. Now it's true in the Old Testament, they went to great lengths to prevent any ritual impurity on the part of the priest. They were very diligent about this, but it's always possible that they missed something. To err is human, you might remember. How did they know if the priest was fit to do the offering and if God had accepted the offering presented on the Day of Atonement? How did they know that God was satisfied? Well, I would like to suggest to you that as the nation held its collective breath, as necks craned and eyes peered to see, the only way they could be sure that God had accepted the offering of the high priest was if the high priest came out of the holy place and they could see him. Now, Jesus, we know from Hebrews 9, I'm not making this up, we know from Hebrews 9 that the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is pictured in the Day of Atonement ritual. Different picture from the Passover, but still pictured. How do we know that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient payment for the sins of the world? How do we know, church? Because he came out. Praise be to God. He came out, and that's how we know. We know that the work of Christ on the cross has been accepted because his bloody, bleeding form that hung on a tree bearing our curse, according to Galatians 3.13. And Isaiah 53.11, he shall make his soul an offering for sin. Let me turn there and read it for you, lest I misquote it. My brain is full of a combination of ESV and KJV, so doesn't always come out quite the right way. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. We have the verses promised in 1 John 2, 2 and 1 John 4, 10 that Christ is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice which satisfies God. These verses are a great encouragement. But the way we know that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus is because Jesus left the tomb. On Easter Sunday, the first ever Easter Sunday, he entered the holy place for us making atonement, and then he came out. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. When we see the empty tomb, we know. The sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb of God, which was offered as payment for the sin of the world, has been accepted by God as the appropriate and necessary payment for sin. And we know it because Jesus came out of the tomb just like the high priest came out of the tomb on the Holy of Holies. That sacrifice made on Good Friday was made for you. It was made for you. His death is a payment for your sin. You say, well, I don't know, I'm going to choose a different way. There is no other way. No one else left the tomb like Jesus 
did. And so his payment is the only sufficient payment. That is why we call men, women, boys and girls of all ages to trust the work of Jesus. It's why we go to South Africa and proclaim, you must know Jesus. Don't trust in the lies of your animistic culture, which teaches you that you must pray to your ancestral spirits and somehow placate them with sacrifices and rituals. Stop doing that. That merits you nothing in the eyes of God. Because your ancestors have died and stayed dead. But Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins and rose again as proof that God accepted the payment he made on your behalf. That's why we tell people that in South Africa. It's the gospel that we proclaim. That sacrifice is also good for people in Edgewood. It's also made for people just across the state line in Indiana. It's made for all people in America. It's made for all people in Canada where I'm from. It's made for all the people in the world. And the empty tomb proves to us that God accepted the sacrifice of the high priest, his own blood, which he offered, as sufficient payment for sin. So the question is, have you accepted the sacrifice? The sacrifice that was made, I've proven today, I hope, that God accepted that sacrifice because the priest left the holy place where he was. And now he offers himself to you and says, believe. Repent and turn from your sin and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. He died so you don't have to. He died so that you can live unto God. And the empty tomb seals the deal. It assures us that Christ's payment was the true payment for the sin of the world. It's a strange connection, perhaps. I tell you, I was listening to a song by Michael Card when it stirred my mind to think about this. Um, he didn't sing everything I've said in a song, so don't worry, I didn't steal it from him. But the seed was planted in a song, and I thought about it, and I reflected on Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement Ritual, and then Hebrews 9, and in my mind this began to take shape, and it seems to me that the empty tomb, among many things that it does, it assures us, even if we're struggling with doubt, is it really true? <laughs> Could it really be? The empty tomb says yes, it is true. Christ's payment is the sufficient payment for the sin of the world. If Christ had stayed dead, we might never know. But he didn't. He rose. And the empty tomb is proof that the payment of Christ has been accepted by God the Father for your sin and for mine. So all we must do now is trust in him, believe in him and what he has done. He offers himself to us. We accept his offering. We believe by faith. We don't work for it. We can't earn it. This isn't a work to earn program. It was provided for us free of charge as a gift of his grace. And so we receive it and we say, thank you, Father, for such a plan as this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for stirring our hearts and minds together on a Easter Sunday. There are so many texts and so many aspects, like, like a diamond held up 
to the light. There are so many points of brilliance in this plan. Today we've considered but one. Lord, would you stir our hearts not only to share this good news with others, not only to personally benefit from the encouragement, but would you cause in us a deep rejoicing, a praise to well forth from our being that we would extol the virtues of what Christ has done, both in a public setting like this, when we're together, and privately, Lord, when we're not gathered in corporate worship. Cause us to worship you as we reflect on all that has been done at the empty tomb. We praise you for such a day as this, and we ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.